Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Vous connaissez le Manchester pudding? Naturellement, c'est délicieux. Sacrilège gastronomique. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk about Soho and the films that are set there. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and as this is the first episode of 2024, I think I can legitimately say to you, Happy New Year. Or can I? Is that still allowed? Or have the woke mob cancelled us with their LGBTQ tofu and their non-binary avocado lattes? You can't say anything these days. What's wrong with complimenting a schoolgirl's legs from a moving van? Some of my best friends are coloured. In my day, you could leave your front door open and people didn't actually want to wear shoes anyway. They were happy being poor. Oh, sorry. I've started reading Facebook by mistake. Back to the script. In this first episode of the year, we're returning to a theme we touched on a few episodes back, that of France and French. Is your dig back? The featured film in this episode is a slightly strange one, in that it's set mostly in London, but is mostly in French. Or at least, the version we watched is, because there are alternative versions of it, and its title differs from country to country. It was released in 1954 with a largely British cast and our version, the one that was originally released in France, is called Monsieur Ripois. The one shown in UK cinemas was called Knave of Hearts and in some other countries it went by the name of Lovers Happy Lovers. Yes, quite confusing. As was the production process, as we shall find out when we meet our guest a little later on, the actor Jason Morell, whose mum was one of the stars of the film. And in the first half of the show, I'll be delving into the back catalogue of another podcast I make to hear about the life of the notorious French poet Paul Verlaine, who lived a scandalous life, some of it famously in Soho. Back in the dark days of the pandemic, I made a regular series for Soho Radio called Mural Morsels. In each episode of that show, I spoke to a different expert guest about one of the historical figures connected to Soho who appears on a piece of street art you might be familiar with, the Spirit of Soho Mural just off Carnaby Street. 
Some of the people we talked about were known to me already, Ronnie Scott, for example, and William Blake, but there were many I'd never heard of until I started looking into them, and one such person was the French poet Paul Verlaine. Paul Verlaine, it turns out, is a fascinating character, a true bohemian whose behaviour and attitude to life flew in the face of respectable society. I can recommend a 1995 biopic of Paul Verlaine called Total Eclipse, in which he's played by David Thewlis. Back in the autumn of 2020, when I was making the Mural Morsel series, I got together with another poet to talk about Verlaine, Niall McDevitt, who was something of a Verlaine devotee. I say he was a devotee because at the time of our meeting, Niall had, unbeknownst to me, been living with cancer for four years and very sadly passed away a couple of years after we met. I'm playing this episode of Mural Morsels in full with the permission and blessing of Niall's partner, the sculptor Judy Goldsmith. In a prominent position, right at the very front of the Spirit of Soho mural, is a gentleman sporting a bald head and a fine beard. He's a French poet who was associated with the symbolist and decadence movements of the late 19th century. At position number 44, it's Paul Verlaine. It's difficult to talk about Paul Verlaine, particularly in the context of his time in Soho, without also mentioning another man, his fellow poet, Arthur Rimbaud. The two became inextricably linked when Verlaine left his wife and child to pursue a passionate and volatile love affair with Rimbaud, and by doing so, scandalised genteel French society. Their affair was relatively brief, a little over a year, and they spent much of it living as an out gay couple in London, a city that Verlaine described as being as black as a crow and noisy as a duck. They disembarked from the boat train at Charing Cross in September 1872 and quickly became part of the expat French community of artists, bohemians and political dissidents who'd carved out a French enclave at the eastern end of Soho. They eked out a living and spent their time writing poetry and drinking absinthe which was cheap and widely available in the cafes and bars of Soho. They fraternised with the French commune movement in exile and attended at least one political meeting in an upstairs room of a long-gone pub, the Hibernia Street Arms on Old Compton Street. It seems odd that of the two men, only one of them, Verlaine, features in the Spirit of Soho mural, which was a point I raised with my guest, Niall McDevitt. Niall is a poet and art activist who was part of the campaign to save the Camden House, in which Verlaine and Rambo lived for a while from development in 2007. He's also a walking artist who does many poetopographical tours of London and beyond, including one about Verlaine and Rambo, and has published three full collections of original poetry. We met at a very appropriate location, and I began by asking Niall to give me a quick potted biography of Paul Verlaine. Born in 1844 in the Ardennes area, he was the son of an army captain. His dad died when he was quite young. He got a job in the civil service, but all the time he was writing poetry, and he began getting in with the literary establishment of his day, the Parnassian movement. He was accepted by them and published by them. And so by the time he was in his mid-twenties, he was a recognized poet of great talent. He then kind of moving around in the salon culture of the city of the time, he met uh, a, a young woman from a very respectable bourgeois family, Matilda Mote, married her. He had a great life ahead of him, a respectable 
life and a kind of life of glory lay in wait. But then a letter from the sticks came. It was Arthur Rimbaud. Verlaine invited him up, and that changed everything. Uh, the legendary affair took place. Verlaine elopes from his own marriage, a newborn son, to be with Rimbaud. They go to Belgium, then they come to London, and then they kind of go back and forth between London and France. And then after a famous argument, they end up in Brussels. Verlaine shoots Rimbaud. He, spent, he does two years in jail, comes out again, comes back to London, does a bit of teaching in, in, in the English countryside through an agency, then goes back to France, uh, lives in the countryside in France, falls in love with another young guy, a, a peasant from the country. Rambo was a peasant too, but this guy wasn't a genius. He, he liked a bit of rough then. <laughs> he liked a bit rough. So, but that guy died young of uh, typhoid, a tra major tragedy in Verlaine's life, a beautiful suite of poems about Lucien Letinois. Then he, he would live on and off with his mother. His mother financed everything. So when Verlaine was uh, impecunious, mum would step in. Mum was a widow, and so Verlaine was the only child. So he was very, very spoiled by his mum. His mum was like an angel who put up with everything, so she was constantly funding everything. Then when she died, he basically ended up in Paris as a kind of as a, a kind of unlikely celebrity. Because of the scandal he'd been involved in, his work was blacklisted. No one would publish him anymore. His reputation evaporated. The he, this is the scandal of, of leaving his wife and yeah, taking it with a man and all that kind of stuff. That's right, and then ending up two years in jail after shooting. Remember that it was an unbelievable scandal within literary circles. It wasn't quite as big as the Wild scandal. It wasn't national news story, but in the world of French letters, it was... Uh, so he basically ceased to exist as a poet. But in his old age, people began reading the stuff that he published, and he, he was publishing new stuff, and uh, slowly a myth began to form around him. Uh, and younger poets who were kind of found the established poets boring, they found Verlaine really, really interesting. And so he, he ended his days as an impecunious bohemian with a top hat and a worn-out old coat, living in hospitals on state charity, and then occasionally living in hotels with two middle-aged prostitutes. He had two lovers who were both middle-aged female prostitutes, and young people flocked around him. When he got out from the hospitals, they'd hang out in the cafes with him, buy him drinks. He was finally elected over the head of a bunch of academic, respectable poets, Prince of Poets in France. At the, after the death of Le Contelil, Verlaine became Prince of Poets, and he died in um, 1896 at the age of 51. Yeah, you mentioned earlier on that in his old age, but he never really reached old age. Yeah, he looked, he looked old when he died. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you touched on a few things there, uh, poetry movements and the salon. Could you explain what the salons were? Because we, I think we, we hear that banded around, and I wasn't really clear what they were. They were basically literary and artistic and musical gatherings that took place in the refined homes of the usually Parisian bourgeoisie. People of talent were invited round, poems were read, music was played, and it was a kind of social, informal social network, but you could actually make a name for yourself on the salon circuit. Verlaine also met uh, his wife at a salon, and through, so you, you could not only get ahead as an artist, but you could meet your future partner at these salons as well. He came to London at least twice, from what you're saying. Yeah. And Soho specifically? He arrived in London for the first time with Rimbaud in September 1872. And they headed straight for Soho because Soho was a French enclave. For instance, we're meeting here in um, Maison Berteau, 
That was a commune art cafe. The commune had uh, been cruelly kind of shut down by the Versailles in May 1871, and there was a kind of mass exodus of about, you know, three, five thousand French people came to live in London. Some of them set up this cafe. So this was a commune art cafe. A year later, Rambo and Verlaine arrived. So there was a nice infrastructure. There'd been kind of uh, exiles and refugees from 1848 as well. So they'd already created a fantastic French London infrastructure. Verlaine and Rambo came straight here. They probably would have crashed in a cheap DOS house. And then they began looking for friends that lived in the area. Felix Regami, an artist, drew cartoons of them in the early days of their arrival. They probably had a pint at the Yorkshire Grey, that place near Broadcasting House. Oh, really? That, yeah. Was it called the Yorkshire Grey in those days? It was, it's been there since 1830s, so, wow. yeah, they would have had a pint at the Yorkshire Grey. I don't Grey. go there. It's full of BBC managers, so it I know. It is. There. Yeah. <laughs> I never That's go. Right. Yeah. They've, they've got a photo of Orwell on the walls, not Rambo and Verlaine, but it's a bit of a no-brainer. They would have had a pint there, with probably with Felix Gregamy. One of the communards that was in London was Eugene Vermesh. He was a kind of hero to Rambo, and he was a friend of Verlaine's. He was a journalist, a polemicist, he set up uh, dissenting magazines. He was kicked out of France. He had to go on the run. He was kicked out of Holland. Uh, but England was very liberal and tolerant, patriotic libertarianism. They let the French in, and they don't extradite them. And so Vermesh was thriving in London. He was living in Fitzrovia on Howland Street, 34 Howland Street. But he was about to get married. So he, he moves out of his rather dingy Howland Street flat. Verlaine and Rambo move in because they know the guys. That's kind of how it worked. It's been bombed into oblivion. But the post office tower kind of marks the, the site of whereabouts on Howland Street they were. And uh, people think that's appropriate because it's one of the most phallic buildings in London. <laughs> uh, Rambo's line, ithy phallic and belligerent. So it's like this big ithy phallic tower that uh, commemorates the, the famous uh, gay honeymoon of our, our, our heroes. Had he had gay affairs before? Yes. When he was at school, he probably had a, an affair with uh, one of his school pals. So that was quite a serious crush when he was a teenager. Rambo was the second big occurrence and that Verlaine was just pushing 30 and Verlaine was exactly 10 years older than Rimbaud so uh, so say say Verlaine is sort of 27 Rimbaud is 16 when they start hanging out together. So uh, of the two only Verlaine has the slot on the Spirit of Soho mural how I mean you didn't paint it obviously but how do you account for that why would he be on there and not not Artur? It's it's uh, it quel surprise as they say. Okay well you speak French. Yeah (laughs) It's inexplicable. It would be great to contact the artist and ask in an uncritical way why she went against the grain. It would have been much likelier to see Rambo there and, and Verlaine being forgotten. What it reminds me of is, is the fact that after the deaths of both men, Verlaine's star was on the rise first. And Verlaine sort of late in his own life and then straight after became one of the most famous poets in Europe. It took Rambo another 30 years to then start eclipsing Verlaine. So that, having Verlaine on the mural puts me in mind of that. Uh, funnily enough, 50 years after they first arrived, Paul Valéry, a great French poet of modernism, unveiled a plaque at 34 Howland Street for Verlaine. So this is, what, 1930s? It's 1922. 1922, yeah. okay. The Annus Mirabilis of Modernism, 1922, great modernist French poet, unveils a plaque for, for Verlaine. Rambo's just becoming huge, but Verlaine is still 
the name to be reckoned with. So the, the mural puts me in mind of that, Verlaine being the better known rather than Rambo, but these days it's the, it's the other way around. So when I um, commissioned my alternative Soho mural, because there's so many people on there who, so many people who aren't on there. Yeah. I mean, lots of them are kind of, you know, gangsters and people like that, but there are noticeable exceptions. Maybe he's, he's one that I should put on there. I think Arthur Rambo is, uh, is, is, is worthy of that. In your opinion, does Verlaine deserve his slot on the, on the mural? Is, does he embody that spirit? He does. He, he, he does. Verlaine really deserves to be in a spirit of Soho mural. Because he came here as a kind of with a gay lover, and Rambo and Verlaine were consciously living in a kind of um, openly gay relationship as a way of kind of shocking the bourgeoisie. So they arrive in Soho as a couple, and that really is completely avant-garde, completely ahead of its time. And so the Verlaine has a real presence in Soho. You see it being celebrated today. There's a poet, Sean Bonney, who's got a great poem. Paul Verlaine reads poems in Old Compton Street, and there's a gay poet called Richard Scott, who has a sequence called Verlaine in Soho. English poets uh, of today are really tuning into the Verlaine presence, which is great because uh, it gets over the slightly immature fetishization of Rambo. And does his poetry survive translation? Uh, this is a problem for Verlaine. He's very underappreciated, underestimated. He's just seen as a grotesque comic sidekick to the, the young genius Rambo, but Rambo himself thought Verlaine was a great poet. That's that should be enough recommendation. Uh, one problem is that Verlaine is such a brilliant musician in the French language; it actually becomes hard to translate it into an equivalent English music that's any good. That's why freer translations are better. Uh, Rambo is more uh, comprehensible because a lot of the poems are in prose, and that, that is easier to translate. You had a couple of um, things you wanted to read from Verlaine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just um, just to give you a, a translation of a sonnet that he wrote, which celebrates Soho okay. as a kind of gay as a kind of gay enclave. Let's hear that. In French, it's sonnet boiteux, limping sonnet. Verlaine was lame. He later became lame from syphilis. It's a funny name, but you can translate it as limp sonnet if you want. But because of the imagery, I call it Sodom, after Verlaine. This melancholy's too much. I'm alone, adventure over. An illegal feeling eats inward. The climax is deathly. I sense, like a mouse in a laboratory, science's scalpel, and observe with soft focus eyes my lifeblood drained. London billows, London shrieks, a city from the Bible. The gas lamps flame and shimmer, road signs redden, and crumbling slums echo seismic pressures, looking weird as covens of toothless, fossilized crones. Ugly flashbacks lunge with spitting and hissing of cats in the filthy pink-yellow fogs of this Soho vice zone, where street slang cuffs your ear as a penance for sins. I'm up to my eyeballs in decay, a shabby martyrdom. In the dust of my window, it's written, the bottom falls out of the sky where fire rampages in this biblical city-state. Thank you to Julie Goldsmith for giving me her blessing to reuse that interview with her late partner, Niall McDevitt. By a lucky coincidence, an event is taking place at the Royal Festival Hall next month on Wednesday the 21st of February, a celebration of the life of Niall, and I've posted a link to that in the show notes. You'll also find links there to information about Judy Goldsmith and other bits and bobs about Niall and Paul Verlaine. That's all at SohoBitesPodcast.com. Listener.
Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions it's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bikes takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. The 1954 film Monsieur Ripois, a.k.a. Knave of Hearts, a.k.a. Lovers Happy Lovers, was directed by René Clément and was based on the 1912 novel by French author Louis Aimon, Monsieur Ripois et la Nemesis. And just to warn you, this podcast does include many instances of me attempting to speak in a French accent. Apologies to all our French listeners. The book, in its original French, of course, was initially serialised in the literary magazine L'Illustration, the illustration. But Aimon never got to see the film of his book or any of the English translations of it, the first of which came out in 1950, because shortly after Monsieur Ripois was published, Aimon's life was cut short at the age of 32, when he was hit by a train. Both the book and the film centre on André Ripois, a French émigré, making a basic living in London. The Ripois of the book is a much darker character than the one we meet in the film. Much of the novel is devoted to his interior monologues as he stalks Edwardian London, seeking out women to have sex with. His treatment of these women is despicable and he frequently discards and sometimes robs them once he's tired of them. The tone of the film and of the character is a lot more light-hearted and he is presented almost as a hapless and endearing lover of female beauty who is but a helpless victim of his own irresistible impulses. At the start of the film, we find André, played by Gérard Philippe, declaring his love to the beautiful Patricia, played by Natasha Parry. They're in a rowing boat on a lake, while Catherine, André's wife, played by Valerie Hobson, relaxes out of earshot on the bank. It turns out that Catherine is well used to André's philandering behaviour and in one of the handful of scenes played in English, she genially has a word with her dear friend and would-be rival, Patricia. Did he compare you to a flower? When he does that, it means he's really serious. I used to be a gladiola. <laughs> True, a gladiola. Doesn't mean anything, really. You'll know that. I know it isn't your fault. He wants every woman in the world to think that she's the only one in his life. Even you. If the girl doesn't give in to him, well, she's just a bore. If she does give in to him, she's an even greater bore. That's the way it's always been. And that's the way it always will be. As for me, I've had enough. It used to amuse me, but not any longer. So Catherine has decided she's had enough and that she's going to leave him. Later on, while Catherine is away in Edinburgh, André tricks Patricia into coming round to the Mayfair flat he shares with his wife and attempts to seduce her. Much of the film is then in flashback as he tells her tales about some of the many women he's slept with, which doesn't seem to me like a good way of getting a woman into the sack, but he clearly thinks he's onto a winning strategy. One of these women in his past was the naive Nora, played by Joan Greenwood, whom he picks up on a bus and eventually becomes engaged to. 
There's also Anne, played by Margaret Johnston, his boss at his office. He moves in with her, but ends up storming out after a row over Manchester pudding, whatever that is, and as his personal circumstances deteriorate, he finds himself homeless and hungry on the street to the West End. This leads him into the arms of Marcel, played by Germaine Montero. She's a warm, kind-hearted street prostitute who nurtures and loves him before he abandons her, taking some of her savings. He thinks he's hit gold dust when he eventually marries the wealthy widow Catherine, hence him now living in some comfort in Mayfair. But this does not temper his behaviour, which is why he now finds himself on the verge of a ruinous divorce, unable to stop himself from attempting to bed Patricia. As I mentioned earlier, the film has several titles and was actually released in two versions, one largely in English, the other mostly in French. As I understand it, each scene was shot twice with the cast, most of whom were British, delivering their lines firstly in one language and then the other. I've not seen the English version and my French is pretty basic, but as far as I can tell, Joan Greenwood, Valerie Hobson and Natasha Parry speak flawless French, and their performances are subtle and captivating. There are some great sequences in the film that hark back quite accurately to the book in which Ripois prowls around the West End monologuing to himself. The setting has been updated, so the London we see here is not that of 1912, but of 1954, and the people on the streets are not extras, but actual passers-by. Although in the film he skirts around the edges of Soho and only really dips a toe into the area, in the book, he spends a lot more time there, eating at specific restaurants and describing the street life, which I hope qualifies it as a Soho film for all those Soho purists out there. There was a kind of woman who didn't interest me, the one who wanted money, because I also wanted it. It was the same exactly what I had the most need. What surprised me is that there were so many in the world, and so little in my pocket. To talk about Monsieur Ripois, I was very fortunate to track down somebody who has a very personal connection to the film. Jason Morell is an actor and the son of one of the film's stars, Joan Greenwood. I think Joan is most famous for starring in some of the most well-loved comedies from Ealing's Golden Age, including Kind Hearts and Coronets, which also stars Valerie Hobson, as well as The Man in the White Suit and Whiskey Galore. Jason grew up in London with Joan and his father, the actor André Morel, and through most of his childhood was largely oblivious to the careers of his famous parents. Until I contacted him, he hadn't seen this French version, Monsieur Rupois, having only seen the English-language version, Knave of Hearts. We met up in the bar of the Soho Theatre, and the table I chose was probably a bit too close to the coffee machine in retrospect, but if there's one thing we like at Soho Bites, it's a bit of genuine Soho atmosphere. I kicked off our conversation by asking Jason to tell me all about his dear old ma. My mother was the actress Joan Greenwood, who was probably most famous for her voice, and she made a series of classic British films, starting with the Ealing comedies, uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets, Whiskey Galore, The Man in the White Suit. She went into the, on into the 60s with films like Tom Jones, and her final film was made in the year of her death. Well, it came out in the year of her death, Little Dorrit, uh, with Christine Edsard, in which she was reunited with Alec Guinness. And she was in uh, Importance of Being Earnest as well, She was she? indeed. Yeah. She was in The Importance of Being Earnest twice with Edith Evans, once in a television version playing Cecily, 
And in the film version with Edith Evans, Michael Redgrave, uh, Michael Dennison and Dorothy Tutin, she plays Gwendolyn, Edith Evans's daughter. And your, your surname, Morel? Is it Morel? Not Morel, isn't it? In a, it's Morel, yes, yeah. which is my father's surname was Morel. He was the actor, Andre Morel who was, uh, again, pretty well known for film, television and stage. They were both very lucky. They were born in an era when there was still a very strong stage tradition. So they both um, effectively were in the first national theatre company at the Chichester Festival with Laurence Olivier, which is the season in 1962 where I was conceived. There was a break in rehearsal and um, <laughs> there was nothing else to do. <laughs> I've seen your dad in, it was in Quatermass. Yes, um, which indeed. I recently saw him in a film called Plague of the Zombies. Plague of the Zombies, indeed. My school fees were largely paid by Hammer Horror. Um, <laughs> so my father did a lot of them, starting with, I think his first was four years before I was born in 59 with Peter Cushing. He and Peter Cushing were Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson in Hammer's first Technicolor, I think, The Hound of the Baskervilles, and it's still watched. Wow. And um, he was also in a film that has some resonance for me, because I live in Bermondsey, and in The Giant Behemoth... Ah, right, yes. Uh, the, the, the giant swims along the English Channel and comes up the Thames and, and decides to storm Bermondsey. So, I mean, thing, he doesn't get very far because you can't, you can't storm Bermondsey. The locals will come and get you, even if you are a behemoth. I think my father made about 70 films. And again, it's symptomatic of the era. There was a lot of work around, if, especially if you got to a certain level. I think the final films he'd have been most proud of are probably something like Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. He also made a lot of films with his best friend, David Lean. His best friend? Yes. Oh, In wow. fact, I'm called Jason David. Those are my first two names after David Lean, who I knew in my teens. He was a fantastic guy. So in Monsieur Ripois, which is also called... Uh, in some territories it's called Knave of Hearts and yes. in some territories it's called Lover's Happy Lovers, which is a Yeah, that was a new choice. one on me. Yeah. yeah, that's a weird one. I think they need to get love into the title probably. Yeah, there's not a lot of love in it though. No, there isn't. It's um, a beautifully cynical film. I want to talk about the cast in a bit because um, there are other luminaries in the cast. Could you sort of give me a quick overview of the story and the, the sort of general premise? Um, the story is about a French rake living in London who really is a sex addict he he's a serial womanizer it starts with him at the end of a marriage trying to seduce a beautiful young woman played by Natasha Parry beautiful uh, unbelievably beautiful unbelievably yeah. beautiful and in his attempted seduction of Natasha Parry he recalls all the other unfortunate women he's seduced including my mother. So the film is largely in flashback, isn't it? It's in flashback, when he's remembering. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like a particularly good strategy to, if you're trying to get off with somebody, as the kids say, by telling them all the times you treated previous women quite badly. It seems to work. I mean, I won't give the ending away, but um, he does have some success with women. Yeah. Quite, quite a lot of success with women. Yes. It's a funny tightrope to walk, isn't it? Because he's fundamentally so utterly unpleasant and ruthless and selfish. So you need someone with Gérard Philippe's sexual allure and charm to have a hope in hell of getting away with it. He is quite charming, isn't he? Yes. I mean, it's, he talk, 
And his um, he he tends to play on his vulnerability. That's what he's doing well, with the attack with P Patricia. It's fascinating, looking at it again this time, to see how often he becomes uh, stereotypically passive and female in his response to the women. There are a lot of powerful women in his life. Valerie Hobson is rich and married and really makes all the decisions. Margaret Johnson, is it, plays his boss in the office. She has all the money. She has all the power. And there's a scene in which she's trying to seduce him and he just lies back waiting for her to do everything. I know that my mother was in love with him, and I think they had an affair. In fact, I'm almost certain you they had You heard an it here first um, on Soho Well, I, I, my mother said as much to me, so maybe there was a bit of art repeating life in the film. The, his seduction of Nora, the character your mum plays, yes. is the most sort of devious and insidious. Mm. I mean, he, he yeah. steals her glove and pretends to find it, and then yeah. she really is a kind of quite a naive person that, oh, I can't possibly go back to, although it's only in French, can't go back to your place because of what my mother think, but she does, obviously. Well, he has to re-seduce her because she gets out of his clutches. The first time I ever saw it at the BFI years ago, they handed you the, the sheet to tell you all about it with the various criticisms. And one of the criticisms said that Joan Greenwood's performance is so poignant and painful that it almost shatters the equilibrium of the film. And there is a point when she thinks she's going to marry him and she's talking about how happy she is and her eyes are full of tears and it's, it's pretty poignant. Yeah, it's a lovely performance. All the women... All, the women are all very different, which is quite interesting in itself. It's like he's trying to rack up you know, a whole load of different types. You yeah. know? The woman that he um, takes him off the streets, she, she's yes. a lady of the night. But it, her that's, name. again, I thought, this is, a lot of critics say, this is almost a Nouvelle Vague film, and it almost is. Because effectively, he's lost a job, he has nowhere to live, He's living on the streets, and it's quite clear he is thinking about becoming a sex worker. That whole sequence about him prowling around, you think, that's what's going on. And I think because of the era you're dealing with, it's that halfway house era, 1954, uh, you're coming out of quite a lot of moral stricture, just about moving into an era of permissiveness. They've gone a bit further, I think, four or five years later. That's interesting, yeah. A bit, some of the films I looked at in this series are sort of late 50s, so even a film like Expresso Bongo, yes. it has scenes in striptease clubs, there's, there's obvious references to sex. Hermione yep. Baddeley plays a, a streetwalker when that's 59, I think. So like you say, it's just at the end of that decade. Yeah. And the 60s is kind of beginning to happen. Yeah. Although people always say the 60s didn't start until Chatelain Chatterley, which is, I think, 63, whatever. Oh, and Profumo, which has a connection to indeed the film. Indeed it does, indeed Could you it expand does. on that connection? Well, Valerie Hobson, who plays Gérard Philippe's wife, Valerie uh, and my mother appeared together in Kind Hearts and Coronets as mm. two very opposing sorts of women. 
Valerie married um, Jack Profumo, the Conservative minister who was who was um, involved in a scandal with Christine Keeler that we all know about. So it was very tough on Valerie, and indeed I I knew her, and I I knew Jack as a child. So I saw their marriage from a very human point of view, even though as a child I didn't know what had happened to them. So you never had a chance to discuss them? No, no, no. I wouldn't have dared. No. I, and, and luckily I didn't know about it. But they behaved with consummate dignity in the wake of that scandal. And he rehabilitated himself with great um, modesty. He, he did a lot of yeah. toying, didn't Fantastic. he? Fantastic, yeah. yeah. It's, it's always seemed quite cruel, all that, because you know, people have affairs. It's, you know, it's not, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's an unpleasant fact of life, yeah. but it ha- happens. But it, for it to happen in such a way, oh. must be appalling. Poor old Valerie, you yeah. know. But she stuck with him. Yeah. She must have just kind of stripped away all of the publicity around it and um, just concentrated on what it means to their, like, like any affair in any, any marriage, you know. Yeah. So you knew Valerie yes. up as well? Yes, in fact, the last time I saw Valerie was at my mother's memorial service in 1989. But your mum died very young, didn't she? Uh, She died relatively young, yes. She died just before her 66th birthday. So young? Yeah, my Mm. father had died a few years before. He was 69, he died of lung cancer, no wonder. 60 untipped Goldwars a day. He wow. was smoking from the age of 14, that generation. That's enthusiasm. That, that is. is. Yeah. And my mother smoked all her life. She'd, she'd started getting bronchial conditions again. And I think that's what killed her, finally. Her famously husky voice, is that, do you think that's separate from the smoking? or was that, People always say she had a plummy voice, but I don't think that's... Thank you very much. No, I, it she, wasn't She's plummy. no more plummy than anybody else no, in that era. absolutely you know, not. It's, it, it definitely is husky and distinctive yeah. and quite sexy. When well, pardon she, me when, talking about your mum in that, that way. No, I'm <laughs> delighted to hear that it still has an effect. Uh, and it does. When she left RADA, she had two voice reports. One of her teachers said... She has a light, pixie-like appearance, which is unfortunately marred by the lower tones in her voice, which she must do her best to eliminate. And the other voice teacher said, she has a deep, rich voice, and she must do her best to cultivate her lower tones. And she went to a very, very famous voice teacher called Iris Warren for years uh, to try and sort out this vocal asymmetry, as she saw it. And finally, Iris Warren, my mother having spent thousands of pounds on this, said, look, this is the voice you've got. You're stuck with it. It's a lovely voice. Yeah, it's a great voice. But it was, she was working at a time when if you looked like my mother, small, petite, beautiful, you were expected to have a voice that was more up here. So she was, I think she was sort of starting a trend. So... I can understand why there was that early paranoia. So you said you saw it at the BFI in, did you say in the 80s, late 80s? I think I probably saw it at the BFI in the 90s. 90s. In the, in the English language version. There were two versions made, weren't there? One the English language and one the French language because, of course, Gérard Philippe was such a huge French star that obviously it was would have been idiotic not to acknowledge the French market. And what's remarkable is that 
nearly all the actresses in it speak pretty good French. Very good French, yeah. My mother prided herself on that because she made another film in France with a famous French actor called Bourville, called La Passe Muraille, in which she plays a, a lady cat burglar and he plays a guy who can walk through walls. But that, I think, was an... In- no, I think there was an American version called Monsieur Peekaboo, but my, my, my mother prided herself on her French, and she had a very good French agent called Olga Horstig Primus. <laughs> and so, so you hadn't seen it before then? You didn't see it during your childhood no. or anything? Or, or? No, I was very much kept out of showbiz as a child. My parents knew what a precarious and ridiculous business it was. But you rebelled. The trouble is, it sneaks in because I knew what my parents did, but because they were very successful. As a child, I just got the idea that all you had to do was say yes to people offering you work or no if you didn't want to do it, which, of course, is... Nothing like it. Definitely not the case. So at a subconscious level, I got an entirely false impression about how easy it was, despite my parents' efforts to educate me away from it. My dad was left school at the age of 14. He was apprenticed to a garage as a young man. He got into theatre through an amateur socialist theatre company. My mother was 17 when she left RADA. She was... Thank God she started working immediately because she was supporting her parents from the age of about 18 or 19. So, you know, the the financial onus was on them both as very young people. So was your childhood one of showbiz parties? Would you come down in the morning and Laurence Olivier's asleep on the couch, that kind of Uh, thing? Again, my parents tried not to let that happen, but inevitably they had very close friends in the business, so... We'd often go down for weekends with, with Alec and Mary Laguinness. My mother's agent was also my godmother, and she had famous tea parties every Sunday, and they were pretty much jam-packed with everybody, really. I had a ridiculously optimistic disposition because I remember my dad and I used to go shopping together. My, my dad did all the shopping in the house, and... A lot of the people in shops would say, oh, he looks just like his mother. And I thought, oh, I see the world's like that. Everybody knows each other. I didn't understand it was anything to do with film or theatre or television. I thought it was because everybody knew each other. So I was insufferably precocious as a child. I used to just say hi to people in the street because I thought That's what people do. The, world, the world is familiar. Yeah. So in the film, uh, uh, you're sitting in front of you is a copy of the book that's which you have found, which I found from uh, it was on eBay or something originally. But it's um, it's this, it's from Moody's Library, which I didn't know anything about, which is quite an interesting side story. So the book was published in around 1912, so around uh, sort of during the First World War kind of era, just slightly before. Um, so the London of that book is a different one. It's been updated for the film. Yes. And the character of Monsieur Ripoir in the book is, I think, a darker character. He sort of purposefully abandons women in quite ah, a cruel, and, he, right. and he 
the story is quite different. The structure is quite different, but lots of the key things are the same. So he does head up a language school. He does live with a prostitute for a while, and he does kind of get slightly offended by the fact that people think he's a pimp. But there's one woman that he basically abandons to poverty and a life of destitution, right. and and he, she kind of begs him for a bed for the night, and he lets her sort of sleep on the floor and doesn't doesn't give her any food and then kicks her out in the morning. So they've, what they've done is they've sort of made him a more of a cheeky, cheery chappy, yes. which is an odd thing. Yes, I'd say there's a, there's a slight bifurcation of style in the film. We were talking about the Nouvelle Vague earlier. René Clément, the director, of course, had put hidden cameras in the streets of London. So you look at real people who Gérard Philippe is moves among and occasionally I don't really you've noticed you catch real people catching a glimpse of the camera for a, for a second which is quite sweet um, so there's this realistic side to it and then he's not quite I think René Clément isn't utterly sure about the style because there's a poignancy and a cruelty and emotional realism to it and then there's a sort of light comedy facetiousness to it, which I'm not, if I am to make a criticism of the film, and you've just put your finger on it, I'm not sure that style quite carries, because in the final moments of the film, Valerie Hobson uh, and Natasha Parry are effectively both quarrelling about who's going to wheel him in the wheelchair. They're still sexually infatuated, and he's eyeing up a girl on the golf course. So... He sort of got away with it, except I suddenly had a thought. Because, of course, in the last six minutes of the film, he falls off a balcony and shatters a lot of bones and ends up in hospital and then ends up in the wheelchair. And my final thought was, oh, is he a permanent cripple? Has he become a permanent invalid who has to be wheeled around by these infatuated women. Is that his punishment? To be eternally tantalised, but never to have what he always had. Had that occurred to you at all? And I think when he starts eyeing up this other attractive young woman, mm. and he has a sort of wistful look, and is that wistful because he's now incapable of yeah. performing the act? I'm hoping that is what it's about, because that would make a far better bittersweet ending. Yeah. If he's got away with it. I, nah. Yeah, I mean, to be permanently crippled does seem quite harsh. Mm. But um, the version of the character in the book, who's much, much crueler and much yeah. darker, he, I think he would deserve it, that, that version of the character. Well, it's also, Alfie came to mind when I yeah, saw yeah. it again. It's the start of this thread of fascination with male heterosexual responses. And funnily enough, Again, you've just made me think Kind Hearts and Coronets, which my mother made with Valerie Hobson a few years before that with um, Alec Guinness and Dennis Price. Again, the central male figure is a serial killer who uses women in a very heartless way. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? That's a great film. So those, film, those eating films are the films that your mum's most uh, well-known for. And they cropped up on TV all the time when I was a kid. I mean, were you aware of... They you, still do, yeah. yes. Yeah, were were, one of the white suits on this week, I've noticed. Were you aware of that? No, it, not at all. No, so you didn't see them? It was a Saturday afternoon, no, rainy Saturday? not at all. I saw them, I think I began to see them 
after my mother died. Really? Yeah, I think I saw them really late. We got a television quite late, especially for my parents being in the business. I think we got television when I was about eight in 1971. Into the 70s, yeah, it is late. Uh, all I was allowed to, to watch was A World About Us for half an hour once a week on BBC Two on a Sunday, right. and that was it. But I remember once my dad and I deliberately going out for our Sunday walk so my mother could watch one of her old films on the telly because it came up as a Sunday matinee, as they did in those days. She hadn't seen herself on screen as a young woman for years. And I remember coming in and she, she'd seen it. She always thought Man in the White Suit would date very badly. She thought it was a bit of a gimmick, but it doesn't actually. As a no. satire about corporate power, yeah. it's, it's really held up. She had Michael Balkan, who ran Ealing Studios. Michael Balkan was a very paternal figure to my mother. Her contract was converted from a rank contract, a JR rank contract, to an Ealing contract in the late 40s. And it was at the time when all the Ealing comedies were coming out and Balkan loved her work and Douglas Slocum, who was a very important DOP at the time, again, adored my mother. In fact, Natasha Parry told me that Dougie Slocum was in love with my mother, which is very useful if you're an actress. Um, I'm sure many, many people were. I think there were. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I remember my mother telling me a story about one of Ealing's first Technicolor films, I think it was its first Technicolor film, was a huge 18th century bio-epic called Saraban for Dead Lovers. It's become a bit of, of cult interest again, because it's again, it's an early British Technicolor film, made in about 49. Um, it's about the doomed affair between George I's first wife and Koenigsmark played by Stuart Granger. So my mother and Stuart Granger are the other doomed lovers. And uh, it took a long time to film because Technicolor filming took a long time in those days. And during the filming, my mother's father died. And on that week, she was due to play a lot of big close-up love scenes with Stuart Granger, which would have been quite difficult because she just lost her dad and to be exposed to that depth of scrutiny on film, especially playing big love scenes, would have been very hard. And nothing was said, but the schedule, the whole schedule was entirely changed so that they played a huge, huge crowd sequence at a festival in which my mother wears nothing but a mask all the time. She's got a lot of close-ups, but she has a mask on. So there was this... This Balkan's doing, is it, do you think? This, that was Balkan. Right. That sort of unspoken consideration for her feelings. Right. Because we spoke about Balkan quite a lot in the... A few episodes ago, uh, I did this short series of programmes about Jesse Matthews. Ah, right. And he kind of guided her career a little bit. But yes. then also kind of discarded her at certain... He, you know, he didn't let her go to Hollywood because she was a fantastic asset... But then when she'd gone past her, because her selling power was her, 
you know, her beautiful long legs and her, yes. dance, her youth and everything. And when she, once she got to a certain stage, he was no longer interested. And then, oh, she, then Hollywood oh. wouldn't pick her up. So it's, I think it's a funny character, Balkan. He, was a, he obviously had very sound principles in terms of, um, you know, he brought people over from Nazi Germany and that kind of thing. Yep. But also could be a little bit ruthless as well because he was a producer, you know, and producers have to be. He had his quirks. So, for example, Kind Hearts and Coronets was one of the most successful healing films ever made and is still recognised as such. But he disapproved of it. He felt it was too amoral and French. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't English in its sensibility. And he sold the entire rights for £1,000. He sold the world rights for £1,000, I believe. Again, I get that from my mother, so I don't know how accurate it is. Wow, that's a great film. It's a fantastic film. He also sold um, Whiskey Galore to my mother as a film. She was exhausted. She'd been doing back-to-back filming, because you did in those days, if, if you were under contract. She was really tired out. He said, do you want a holiday on the island of Barra? <laughs> and my mother said, all right. A little bit of filming. And there, it was, but... in fact, to film Whiskey Galore. So she did get a bit of a holiday, but she was also having to make a film as she did it. And ironically, she loathed whiskey of all drinks. She right. detested whiskey. And during the filming, she got pneumonia. And she remembers being in a local hut covered with rugs, shivering with pneumonia. And a, a Barra Islander, old guy, came up to her with a clay mug which was full to the brim of whiskey. And she smelt it and felt sick. And he just poured the lot down her throat. And she fell into a coma and woke up 48 hours later, but was cured of her pneumonia. So what can I say? I was commenting before on your spectacularly cool spectacles. I often have have spectacle envy, even though I like mine too. But yours are, are very nice. Um, and you're very short-sighted, which you've inherited from... My mother. Both parents, or just no, your No, no, okay. my father was long-sighted. Right, okay. Uh, my mother was intensely short-sighted. We lived in the World's End, just off the King's Road, in London, and you take the number 11, the 19, or the 22 to get up from the World's End to Sloan Square to take the underground. And when I was about 14, I got on the bus, climbed to the top, and I saw my mother sitting at the front, and I got in beside her, and I was about to say, oh, hello, how's it going? And I realised she hadn't realised it was me, her only son. Because she didn't have her glasses on. She didn't have her glasses on. She hardly ever had her glasses on. She was vain. (laughs) Of course she was. She didn't like wearing her glasses. So I thought, out of curiosity, I wonder how long she's not going to recognise me for. So we went all the way up the King's Road. Not a dicky bird. She didn't twig me for a moment. Came to Sloan Square, I thought, well, she's going to have to climb over me. She must recognise me then. No, she got off the bus and she hadn't recognised me all the way up, unless there's, that says something about our relationship, which I hope it doesn't. So the, the film, it's not... 
I wrote somewhere recently that it's an Anglo-French production. Yes. It's not really... Is that something you would describe it as? Or is it, because as I understand it, the process was they'd shoot a scene in English and then they'd also shoot the scene in French and yes. cut it accordingly. That's as I understand it. Okay. And then it was released sort of largely in English or largely in French. Is that I can't quite get to the bottom of... How they did it? Is that, is that how you understand it? And you, the one you saw was the English language version, is that right? The first version I saw was the English language version, but the link you gave me was the French version, which I was very intrigued to see. I, I'd wondered if there was going to be a difference in the acting, whether, for example, the English actresses would be more awkward in French, and to their credit, they're not. So the scenes where Monsieur Ripois and Patricia in the, are in the flat and he's trying to seduce her by telling these stories, so those interactions were all in English? Yes. Her with her English accent, him with his French accents? Yes. Interesting. And there's the, there's the woman who lives over the way. Yes. There was another, another one, another woman that is... Yes, yeah. she's entirely... I think, she, is she American? She's American yeah. in real life. But she does her scenes in French in the version I've seen. Right. You, you've just reminded me, when my mother trained at RADA in the late 30s, one of the things you had to do was also speak and act in French. There was a particular French acting teacher. She was called Alice Gachet. So all actors at the time got a grounding in French. Interesting. With a French report. Which is interesting because, again, French wasn't a majority language. It was a very important cultural language. But it, it's a nod to maybe a more cosmopolitan time when actors were being prepared by being made to acquaint themselves with another language. Is it also a thing similar to the idea of you know, finishing school and those kind of applying a sort of a social, last social Actually, layer? Actually, you, you're right there is a bit of that, maybe a bit of that Debbie thing is going on. It's posh to speak French. Interesting. When you think about your mum's career, it's always the Ealing films that come to mind. They're the kind of standout classics. But this is from kind of the same era, and yet it's not one of the ones that comes up on the list. Where do you think it stands in her career? Was it one that she was particularly proud of, do you think? Well, it's, of course, it's a little bit later than her era of Ealing, because she stopped making Ealing films in about 1951. But... It was a very touching reminder for me of the way my mother saw her career and saw the business of acting. She was always fascinated with working out of her box. So she was delighted to be able to have a French film career. She made that film with René Clément. She made a film called La Passe Muraille with the great French actor Bourville. She then... When she went to Hollywood, she was enticed to go over to Hollywood because it was her chance to work with a great German director, Fritz Lang. And then when she uh, came back to England, she started working with the English New Wave, people like Tony Richardson on films like uh, Tom Jones. And you mentioned the film she made in the 70s, Boy Stroke Girl, which is an extraordinary film in contemporary terms about gender. I so, just quickly explain that, because this is something that we talked about before we pressed record. Yeah. Um, it's a film I watched uh, two nights ago, and it kind of blew me away. It's 1971. They're talking about gender fluidity, all these issues that are... I mean, to be honest, it's not 
something I have any skin in the game of, and I don't really kind of follow the arguments. But it's to be talking about those issues yep. at that time was very interesting. Really ahead of its time. When my mother first went to Hollywood, she was told she could watch any film that she wanted at a, a private screening of her own whenever. She was under contract to MGM at the time. And she didn't want to watch any of the new stuff. She wanted to see Garbo's first tests for when she came to Hollywood. And she was fascinated by that era. So it touchingly reminded me how proud I am of her because she thought out of her box as an English actor. She was very progressive, she was very internationalist, and she was very aware of new styles and new trends. She was forever reinventing herself. So thank you for that reminder of my mother's energy and progressiveness. Thank you to Jason Morell for meeting up with me in the bar of the Soho Theatre to talk about Monsieur Ripois and, of course, about one of its stars, his mother, Joan Greenwood. You'll find links to information about Jason in the show notes for this episode, as well as all the other stuff about Niall, Julie and Paul Verlaine. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show, that's a very simple thing to do. Head over to the show notes website where you can choose from one of the many podcast apps listed there. That's all at SohoBytesPodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can tweet or X us. The handle is at Bytesoho. And our email address is SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Threads now and Blue Sky. Details about those can be found on the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by leaving a kind review at SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash review. Do you say forward slash still? I don't think you do, do you? Anyway, I'm going to continue saying it. Or by showering me with some of your pennies to help cover our costs at SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash donate. SohoBytes is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. I'll see you in a few weeks, and au revoir mes amis.